Hello and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Brookings Institution Senior Fellow Ben Wittes interviews General Michael Hayden on his book, Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror. And it was recorded on March 11th, 2016. So I want to start with with the uh, opening chapter of your book, Mm -hmm. which um, you, you know, we have this idea in the modern debate over NSA and its and its powers of this omnipotent agency that has, you know, the octopus circling the world kind of image. And you describe coming in as director to an agency that had in a, in a non-modern sense, gone dark. Yeah. That is, it's all its computer systems had, had crashed, uh, that wasn't functioning well at all, and that was uh, really, really behind the times. Um, and so I want to start with your, th- your thoughts on how, does, how did we go from an agency that, you know, whose computer systems failed one day and went completely dark, yeah to an agency that we think of as scarily omnipotent. Yeah. Well, if I can, let me run it back one more reel in the movie. How did it go from an agency that everyone thought was at the top of its game to an agency in 1999, 2000, went belly up in its IT system, and then on to that. Yeah. Uh, so what it is, the first, the first chapter, it, it is classically Darwinian. This was an organism that had developed patterns of behavior that were well suited to a particular environment, and the environment changed. And and fundamentally, it it was an an agency that put secrecy above all, and the tariff for secrecy for most of its history was fairly light. It was fairly light politically. It was fairly light in terms of political culture. And it was fairly light technologically, because for a lot of the agency's history, if they wanted it, they had to build it, all right? And it's kind of the birthplace of American computing science. Still, the, the, the centrality, uh, this, the core point of American mathematics, right? And so, so it built, Ben, this high walls to keep the secrets in and no penalty because there wasn't that much out there that they wanted. And now we go through the 90s, an explosion in telecommunications, explosion in computing power, and now, all of a sudden, the private sector is outstretching the government in terms of innovation and, and, and regeneration, and you still have got the very high walls. And so you had an agency whose habits of thought were, were actually in the kind of the literal meaning. And it's not, this is going to sound critical. I don't mean it to be. It's, it's, it's more clinical. It's, its patterns of thought were pathological. I mean, it was a pattern of behavior that led to unhealthy results. Big walls, keep it up. In order to keep it in, Big walls were, were keeping things from the outside from, from getting to the inside. So that was the first major change. Then <clears throat> a couple of things happened. Um, the second chapter talks about what we call transformation. And when we try to kind of pull the walls down, which meant you had to go more public, we actually began hiring from the private sector. We outsourced our IT, our, our administrative and internal IT, to a private company rather than doing it ourselves. And then finally, the secret sauce. We got lots of money. (laughs) And I'll I'll use the number I use at CIA. When I was director at Langley, I had $2 for every $1 George Tenet had on September 10th. And there was the same pattern at at NSA. So so there was indeed a, a cultural shift. There was a fiscal shift. And then, then one more thing I should add that really answers your question, Ben. We knew all along as we were falling further behind and we had to run the catch up and, and global telecommunications and so on and so on and so on, if we did this half well, given what we were all doing in the cyber and electromagnetic domains, if we did this half well, this was going to be the golden age of electronic surveillance. And that's really what happened. So that's how you went from we're collapsing, it's going bad, to holy smoke. 
So this is a very complicated book. I was trying to make a mental list <clears throat> as I came over here today of all the things you're trying to do in this book. There's a memoir. There's also a series of policy <clears throat> arguments about a series of discrete issues told through the lens of particular episodes that you went through. There also seems to me to be a broader macro thesis about the nature of intelligence, which you never state exactly except in the title, right? Which seems to me to be that there's a, you, you know, that it is not for the intelligence community to decide what the rules are. But once you define the space in which the rules exist, there is an obligation to use the entirety of that space. And I, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Is, is, is that the sort of overarching yeah, thesis it here? It, it is. No, there, there's some caveats, all right? Nothing, I mean, the whole book is gray, all right? There's no black and white, all right? So, so, so there, are, there are nuances here. Um, you should certainly feel free to and in certain circumstances compelled to go all the way to the edge in, in terms of what it is you're authorized to do by the broader political legal structure that, frankly, gets delivered to you. Yeah. Now, you, you're, you're part of the original dialogue, all right? I mean, you're not just <coughs> waiting for the political processes to throw stuff through the transom. You actually take part, well, well, if this, therefore that. Let me make sure you understand if you give this up, this is what you don't get. So you plan that. So, for example, kind of fast-forwarding the CIA, in the transition in 08 to 09, um, we actually went to the incoming guys and said, we read your executive order. Do you really understand what that part here means? And, and what the part meant was giving up renditions. All right? And they went back and said, no, we didn't mean that. And so they actually took it out. They, they kept, I mean, the current policy of the guys over there with regard to renditions is the same as the Bush administration, right? So we, we, wasn't our call, but we said, you know, if you do this, this isn't going to happen. By the same token, though, when they take out detentions and interrogations, I sent a message out to the workforce saying, the president has given us exactly what we should expect from a president. He's given us clear guidance. The box he's given us is smaller than the old box, not our business. We will work aggressively within the new box as aggressively as we did as we did in the old one. Now, now, you don't want to do that mindlessly. You don't want to do it when it's not necessary. But the tenor, the tone of the book, Ben, is when it's necessary, go to the edge. Because if you don't, by the way, if you go to the edge, you know, and you know, um, you're going to be in front of an unfriendly committee sooner or later. The New York Times is going to write a really bad op-ed about you. All right? you, you you're, going to, you're going to have to face unruly audiences whenever you want to give a speech on a college campus. All right? but, but if you don't go to the edge, then you're protecting yourself or your agency. You're not protecting the country. All right, so let's talk about the first episode in the book in which you, know, you guys went to the edge, which is stellar wind. Yeah. Um, number of fascinating aspects of your account of this. One of them is uh, the disparity between what the press thought it had and what you thought the press had. Yeah. So the New York Times uh, develops a piece of this story, which from their point of view is the warrantless wiretapping story. And from your point of view is one corner of stellar wind. Which was never controversial inside the government. Right, which was not the part of Stellar Wind that caused the right. big upset within right. the government. Right. Um, and, you know, there are these tantalizing descriptions in the book in which you almost make it sound like you were pleased for them to be focused on, on this and for them to blow this part of the program as long as they didn't, you know, if that kept them yeah. distracted from. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested what your, what your response as this thing developed was. In, 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 in the time. In the time. As it was going. Yeah. So we really had a dilemma. And I, I say this, I try to say this clearly in the book. They had a story. They didn't have the story. And by that, I, I don't mean they, they, you know, we were trying to hold this tight and, I mean, they had bits and pieces all around. 
and they were trying to put it together, and, um, and they were putting it together inaccurately. But we were trying to argue that they really shouldn't be publicizing whatever it is they put together. So one of the solutions for that is you actually tell them how the puzzle works. One of the solutions is you actually show them the, the, the top of the box with, with the puzzle all put together and, and use that as an argument. So you see, uh, we really shouldn't be talking about this. So we did uh, with the Times. We did with uh, Phil Taubman, uh, Washington. There's an episode in there where I'm, I'm with Phil, who's the Washington bureau chief. And um, we're, we're in the office. And uh, it's me and Bob Dietz, who was my general counsel. And I had two Stuttlewin analysts. And we had Phil out. And again, the argument was, it would be bad for you to make this known. This, this is a competitive advantage we have. And, and your scary story isn't quite accurate. And so we're talking, we're talking, and I said, oh, stop. Phil, I'm, I'm going to take a break. I'll be back in about 20 minutes. You guys, and I pointed to the analyst, answer whatever question he asks you. And I left the room. And, you know, years later, I talked to the analyst, right? And, and it's, it, I left him with Talman. I said, just answer what the man says. And um, so they did. And one of the analysts later told me he felt like a Catholic who had just committed a mortal sin. And, and rather than running to the confessional, he ran down to the general counsel's office <laughs> and said, I just did this, Father. Bless me, Father. Father. <laughs> but the idea was to disarm him and say, no, no we're, not, we're, not, we're not afraid of the truth. In fact, these two kids here who actually know this really well, I'm really comfortable with them just answering you from their heart. And but, then I'll live with your consequences. But they were answering from the heart about this piece of the story that, in fact, from your point of view, was only a yeah. corner of it. Yeah. So, so if you read slowly through the chapter, you'll figure out there were probably about three tracks within Stuttlewind. The New York Times had one. All right? Um, and, and that was, in essence, the content right. of, of U.S. calls. Right? They, they did not have the metadata story. And, and as much as I wanted to explain what it was we were doing and why we were doing it, I felt no moral or legal compulsion to tell them the metadata story. Right? So we just, let that, we just let that there. And by the way, neither of those are the story that caused the March 2004 implosion within the Bush administration. Which was the internet metadata yeah. component. So, so now all of these components have become public. We've had this big public debate. We've had legislation. The internet metadata program is shut down. Um, I'm interested in how you assess it all in sure. retrospect. Sure. So you, you walked up, you got chalk on the shoes, um, and there's been a lot of debate about how significant, how, how uh, valuable these programs sure. really were. How do you think about it in retrospect? I'm, I'm, you can probably tell from the tone of the book, Ben, I'm very much at peace by it. All right, look, I get, I get the arguments, all right? And, and fundamentally, the arguments are, are not that, that you misuse this. They, they really aren't, right? No one has claimed misuse, right? The argument is, ooh, that's accruing an awful lot of power to the government. I'm a little nervous about any government, even a benign one, having that power. I get that, all right? I understand that argument. But our argument was we are extraordinary circumstances. Both the Congress and the President said, fix this. And, and Frank, let me just be very brief. What was this? Okay. Prior to 9-11, we had pretty much organized ourselves to, to preserve both our security and our liberty, our safety and our privacy by saying, all the foreign stuff over there, all the domestic stuff over here, all the intel guys over here, all the cops over here. And 9-11 was 19 guys driving right through the scene between those two. So the direction we got from the Congress which was fix the scene. And so this was the best, the best idea we came up with. So what's become of it? So um, the metadata program gets briefed to an incoming president who frankly ran on not being George Bush and who every political instinct he had was to differentiate himself as much as he possibly could from his predecessor. He gets briefed on it, and what does he do? He continues it. You talk about the Internet stuff, right? Uh, and, and NSA did indeed shut down an aspect of that in, what, 11 or so? Yeah. Yeah. 
but they also have Congress then approve the 702 program in the, in the Protect America Act and the FISA Reform Act, which is infinitely beyond anything we were ever doing with, in, with internet metadata, right? And so actually, you know, it's, it's not so much that we, uh, oh, well, that was then, this is now, we better step back. Frankly, I'm stunned at how much the political consensus has moved well beyond anything we thought was necessary and appropriate in the months following 9-11. So one, one person in your account of Stellar Wind who does not come off all that wonderfully is the current FBI director, Jim Comey. And I'm struck by this, I mean, because right now Comey is making an argument that is very similar to the argument, at least similar conceptually, to the argument that you guys made about Stellar Wind, which is that, look, I gotta I use- I gotta know, I gotta I, I go. Got, and I gotta use all the legal authority yep. that I plausibly might have. Go figure, huh? Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in your assessment of, uh, you know, what do you, there's there's some not so veiled hostility to Comey in there. Ah, no, no, no. And there, well, I, correct me. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I look. I've, I've said, you know, very publicly recently, because because I usually get the Comey question in terms of somebody's emails, okay, not not this. And I say we cross paths in government, but he was highly principled, and I believe that the email investigation. And I'm telling this to people kind of to the right of the spectrum here. I'd say this email investigation is in very good hands. This is a very honorable man. And he, and he was in the March 2004 book. We just had a different view of, actually, not just the view of the law. I'll, I'll spin it down to detail. We had a different view as to what constituted a, an acceptable or unacceptable amount of incidental collection. Collection you do not intend, but the technology doesn't permit you to screen it out. What constitutes a reasonable as opposed to an unreasonable amount of incidental collection? That's all it was about. That was, that was it, all right? It wasn't like, that's black and that's white. It's no, that's too dark a shade of gray because you cannot filter out a sufficient volume of protected, yours, communications, and you're, you're incidentally sweeping it up. Now, I tell the story in the book that about four or five months later, we pretty much resumed the program. Right. And not under the president's raw Article II authorities, but from the FISA court. Which then means that the FISA judge broadly, and this is, there's a lot of fine print here, Ben, but the FISA court broadly accepted the understanding that, no, nah, that's probably a reasonable expectation of filtering out the protected and the <coughs> unprotected. And before anybody hyperventilates, um, I mean, that's not unusual. That happens all the time. I mean, what I say in one of the, the early chapters is the big difference between the Cold War NSA and the, and, the, and the current NSA is that all the things you wanted NSA to track then were on isolated government-controlled networks. And everything you want NSA to track now are coexisting on a global grid with your emails. And so the, the question of distinction and, and becomes very important. And as a subset of distinction, there's proportionality. How much of protected communications are you, are you inadvertently or incidentally collecting? That's really what it was about. So, I mean, it wasn't trivial. The man was going to resign, all right? But I, but I point out in the book that the, the, the one who carried the argument in the White House wasn't the Deputy Attorney General. It was Bob Mueller who agreed with, with Jim Comey. And it was, I just, it was, I'm just repeating what's in the book, so no secrets here. President Bush, on a political, professional, and personal level would not, encounter, would not accept someone like Bob Mueller resigning from his administration. That, that's, what, that's what flipped the conversation over. So the president then says to me, I think we're going to stop it. How long is it going to take for you to, for you to stop it? I go, about 10 days. All right? Okay, shut it down. What do you want me to do with all the stuff we've collected? Okay. And the answer was, don't throw it away. 
we're, we're not. No, no. I mean, I, okay, it's a semi-cute story, but but it talks to the truth of the ambiguity of the legal argument, even in the decision to shut it down, because if it, if it were clear that it was illegally acquired, you wouldn't have got lock it down. Ask me before you access it, which is what we got. So. Just to, to, to close the circle on, on the FBI director, today Comey is arguing essentially what you were arguing before. That is, I need to use all the legal authority that I have. You want to change the size of the box, that's Congress's business. But when the box is here, I gotta I gotta yeah. gotta go up to the line. And you disagree <laughs> with him on the merits of the issue. I do. But do you think he's right? You know, on the same theory that oh, you were. Of course were he is. And if I were the FBI director, as FBI director, I would have that position. But now, now you got to let me explain. Sure. All right. So in a lot of ways, y'all know where we are, right? We're doing Apple and iPhones and encryption. Okay, good. Um, there are constitutional issues involved here. Can the government direct a company to do something the company doesn't yet do? All right. I do care, but but. For purposes of this question, I'm going to tell you, I don't care. All right? I'm not a lawyer. I'm certainly not a constitutional lawyer. If you're asking my opinion, yeah, I think the government has the right to demand that of the company. Okay? So that's a constitutional question. Now you've got a privacy question. There's no privacy involved here. He's dead. And he never owned the phone. There is no privacy question with regard to the phone. I'm answering the question in my old lane. I'm answering it in the national security lane. I think the government has the right to direct Apple to open the phone. I just don't think it's a good idea. And I don't think it's a good idea for American national security. Bada bing, back to the 2004 argument. I actually think America is better served with unbreakable end-to-end -end encryption without anyone being allowed exceptional access through the wall. All right. Last two or three years, Jim Clapper has testified in the worldwide threat briefing, threat number one to America, cyber. Right? I get it. This is a legitimate request. For God's sake, I wish we could, we could do it. But I do not know of a way of doing it without creating what every technologist I've talked to tells me is a measurably less secure encryption system over here. And so just on the grounds of American security, Back to the book, everything's a trade-off, everything's gray. Right? On the grounds of American security, I think the government can claim it. I don't think it should. I actually simply think it's, it's not illegal, it's just unwise. On, over the long term, it makes America less safe. And if you let me just spin it two more revs, all right? And if the government were to do that, let me just let me describe to you what the government just did. Through a court order or legislation, the government has just outlawed technological progress. Okay? That is not a winning hand. Number two, what then does our government do when other countries, for their own self-defined, legitimate law enforcement purposes, come to, come to Tim Cook and say, hey, Tim, big guy, here's my warrant. Open the phone. China, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia. And then the final turn is, if we do this, and if we outlaw this, make it compelled that you've got to do the thing here, right? All we're going to do is drive high-end encryption offshore. We're not going to stop it. Okay? So I'm sorry, this is a long answer to your question, Ben, but it's the current event here. Um, that's really bad to drive in, in encryption off, offshore. Um, that actually makes us, in, in, in every dimension, less safe. The little morality play I use, and it's not in the book, it's something that happened to me in 2000. And the, the issue du jour was something called MTOPS, millions of theoretical operations per second. It's a measurement of computing power. And we had export limits on it. And the guys in the White House were getting beat up by American computer manufacturers because now the Japanese were, were matching our game and taking global market share away from us. So John Podesta calls, calls us down. We have a meeting. And it's kind of NSA saying, no, 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 you can't. Can't export those computers. Because for us, computing power is combat power in terms of encryption. So we go back, we huddle with NSA, um, we go down to the next meeting, and we totally flip our position on the grounds that the overall health of the American computing industry 
was far more important to the long-term success of the National Security Agency than any tactical, transient, specific advantage we might enjoy over a particular adversary because our computer was bigger than their computer. I really do think we're seeing echoes of that here. Let me go one more. Give up, give up content. Content's going away. There is a natural arc to technological progress that's going to make content more and more and more difficult to extract from communications. And it really is not going to matter a whole lot what attitude the federal government's going to take. Accept that reality, decline gracefully, and begin to gather information from electronic surveillance, which is still available, operationally relevant information that isn't dependent on content. Sorry, long answer, but no. there you go. Very interesting. So I want to, you're the only person who has served at the senior levels, the senior level of both NSA and CIA, and you also slipped in between them. You good, know, good verb. The, yeah. the, 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 the DNI stuff. <laughs> um, and I'm, you know, there's this, one thing that's not in your book is any kind of reflection on the sort of difference of those offices. Yeah. Uh, you have a chapter on whether the DNI was a good idea that kind of concludes as no, but we can, Comma, but. But we can right. work with right. it. Yeah. Um, and we certainly shouldn't reopen it now. Right. But I'm interested in, you know, as NSA director, you're contributing some enormous percentage of the PDB every day. Your, <clears throat> your budget is some, I don't know, some very large a multiple of the CIA's budget. But it, you're particularly if you throw in the NRO right. overhead architecture. And yeah. and you're also describe being called on the phone by George Tenet as DCI, who is your boss. Yeah. Um, then you go mm. over to CIA and you're you're not contributing the lion's share of the PDB but you're the, 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 the face of the U.S. intelligence community. Which is a, which is a more significant role? Yeah. What, what's the relationship yeah. between those roles? So the easy question to answer is, which job do I enjoy more? <laughs> and, and the answer is CIA, but only because of the covert action. All right? I mean, CIA, you, you get to make the decision Tuesday night, and you get to look at the pictures Wednesday morning, okay? which you, you can't do at NSA. So that, that was a tiebreaker for me. It was the covert action portfolio. This is really rough. But if I'm, I'm doing a pyramid of American espionage here, all right, I would draw for you that the base 60% is SIGINT. Okay? It, it, it's, it's kind of the blue collar, day in and day out. Is everything the same as it was yesterday? Gut check? That's SIGINT. I mean, it also has some brilliant insights as well. But that base 60% is SIGINT. And then you got another 20% of kind of like everything else, a little imagery, a little Mazint, uh, some open source stuff. And then at the top of the pyramid is the 20% the that I would say is kind of CIA product. So you, you kind of got the industrial strength in espionage down here, and you got a pretty high-end boutique store up here at the top that really delves into intentions and, and longer-term Expectation. It's very cartoonish, Ben, but that—that's. That, I don't think that's a, a grossly unfair depiction of how we steal other nations' secrets. So, you come over to CIA in a particularly weird moment, yeah. right? You're not uh, the the RDI program is still there, but it's not. You certainly didn't initiate it. You're in, you're in sort of some form of rollback mode. You, uh, the publicity associated with it is all on your watch. And the decisions about uh, the end of it by the incoming administration is on your watch. Um, you have a fascinating passage in the book which I think is really interesting in light of your comments about uh, Mr. Trump the other day, hmm. um, where you say that you know not one of the people that you worked with 
would have ever defended these techniques as the regular order or an attractive option for general purpose Kind of universal use. application. Right. Yeah. That these were highly specific <coughs> applications to very specific people and very specific circumstances. I'm wondering how much, like I, I, I detect from your, your comments about Trump that it bothers you a lot, the sort of normalization yeah. of, of the, the idea that these techniques have normal day-to-day -day application yeah. In the in the uh, fight against Al Qaeda or other terrorist groups, I'm just interested in your gestalt sense. What's the what's what's the right way to think about this yeah. group of techniques as applied when they were applied and with any future type of application? So, just a couple of general thoughts. Uh, do not think of these casually. Do not think of them at the level of bumper stickers, which is what you're, you're suggesting. Um, I actually say in the book, as I'm getting ready to approve extended sleep deprivation over a fellow named Muhammad Rahim, that uh, I never forgot he was a human being. And I'm, I'm sitting there at the paper going, hmm, wish it wasn't my day in the office, but it was my day in the office, and I had to make a decision. And I, and I authorized it, all right? And I'm, I don't lose any sleep over that, but I recognize that, that that wasn't, I tell a story about going to Camp 7 in Guantanamo, which is where we pushed all of our 14, and Larry Pfeiffer's here with me. We're, we're going through Camp 7, and the styrofoam containers that had brought lunch into the 14, I guess by that time maybe there were 15 there. I think Abdul Hadi was there as well. It came out, and the one styrofoam container from uh, Abu Zubaydah had stylized lightning bolts, and I mean, it looked like a high schooler's notebook, all right? And you're just kind of looking at that, and I go, what's that? And the staff at the camp said, oh, he does that all the time. And you know, I, kind of, I mean, I, I say in the book something along the lines of, it's hard to dehumanize someone when you're looking at his adolescent artwork, okay? So you always recognize this, so it's never done casually. I mean, I talk to interrogators, all right? I mean, when I, I went there, Ben's right, the program, the word I used was in stasis. And I had, to, I had to devise a way ahead. And so I spent the summer of 06 saying, all right, what do we got here? And I actually talked to interrogators. None of them dehumanized any detainee. Quite the opposite. I, mean, I, I had one with tears in his eyes talking about um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the relationship he developed with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. All right? Again, those tears weren't tears of regret. I did, what, I did what I did. I know what I did. I'm glad I did it. And we learned stuff. But you know, I, within the last year, after the Senate Democrat report came out, uh, someone read a portion of the report that um, CIA officers in the interrogation appeared emotionally distraught during some of the interrogations. And, I, and they asked me the question. I said, well, I certainly hope so. I would, not, I would not want anyone in that room who was not, knowing what they did. So. We understood it was a heavy burden. The, the nation was an extremist. We had limited intelligence on these folks. Um, and so my predecessors made some decisions that I refused to, to even begin to think how I would or would not have handled them. They had their circumstances. I had mine. And even mine, Ben, I didn't do away with the program. I kept the sites, emptied them, but kept them. Actually put two more people in them reduced the techniques but didn't eliminate them, and actually argued with the incoming administration, be careful what you ask for here. You may think you need these in the future. Don't, don't go cutting off, cutting off your options. Now you fast forward to now, it, it cheapens the mental anguish that really good people went through to do what they thought was their duty, and they did it out of duty, not of enthusiasm. And, and, then, and then when the candidate says, I'm going to waterboard and a lot more because they deserve it. I'm about to lose a more, grinding my teeth, because we never did anything because they deserved it. This was never retrospective. I get it. Probably a significant fraction of the room here thinks we never should have done it. But we never did it because of the things in our rearview mirror. We did it because of things we expected to learn in our windscreen. This was always about the future. It was always about gaining life-saving information. It was not about, it was not about retribution. And so to have that put up 
You know, it's, it's a little bit like the argument over stellar wind, you know? You got some folks who just reflexively respond and saying, NSA's reading all my emails. God, NSA. And then you got a whole bunch of people over here going, hey, I got nothing to hide. You can read any of my emails you want. I'm as offended by that as I am by this. this we're doing it again. I'm as offended by your horrible people and you're ashamed of the nation as I am by this guy over here saying that we ought to do a hell of a lot more. Both of those are offensive. So one of the, one of the really interesting tidbits in your uh, discussion of interrogation, which I, you know, maybe only someone as sickly fascinated by this <laughs> stuff as I am would have noticed, is your prescriptive description in your, in your voice from then of what the rules should be. And you're, you're, I'm paraphrasing here, but you basically said, I don't want anybody going in for more than about 60 days. Maybe we can reauthorize for another yeah, 60 yeah, days. Yeah. Um, and no one goes in without an exit plan. And I look at the Obama administration's policies on now high-value detainees. They don't do it through an RDI program in the CIA. But basically, the policy is you can have 60 days of, of isolated, hardcore interrogation subject to the, su subject to the um, Army Field ATM, Manual, yeah. the, the, the um, uh, uh, annex of the Army Field Manual. You can reauthorize it for 30 additional 30 days, and nobody goes in without an exit plan. Um, right. And the exit plan for them in the Warsami context is almost always going to be some sort of criminal justice or, you know, render to the Iraqi forces as they did the yeah. other day. Um, and so I'm I'm interested. How is that like stellar wind? An example of where yeah. that where there just isn't that much policymaking space. And you go in with whatever priors you, you go in with, but at the end of the day, you sort of come out the same place? Or is this another example of where they talked a bigger game than they could do, and at the end of the day, yeah. they came around to what you believe? Those are not mutually exclusive universes. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so I, I go to the German embassy, and it's in the book, in 07. The Germans are in the chair of the EU. Ambassador Scherer, with a good friend of America, would have a kind of a Euro Bubba's meeting every two weeks because Germany was in the chair of the EU. So we'll get this straight. All the ambassadors from the European Union to the United States would come to the German embassy for lunch. And then he would he, he occasionally would have an American come speak. I'm sure Condi spoke, I'm sure Bob Gates spoke. So he had me speak. And I thought, well, okay, we're among friends, let's be candid. So I chose for my biblical verse renditions, detentions, and interrogations. All right? And we walked through it and we had a we had a pretty exciting conversation. And at the very end, we're all, by the way, I'm getting near the end, and Ambassador Sherwood kind of looks up at me and says, well, General, General, you have to admit, we're all children of the Enlightenment. <laughs> Having had a really good Catholic liberal arts education, I knew what he was talking about. And I said, yes, sir, Mr. Ambassador, but you Europeans seem to be in love with Locke, and we Americans are hugging hogs. Okay? <laughs> um, and at the very end of it, I said, thanks, this has been really great. It's been very useful. But I got to tell you, in a few minutes, I'm going to walk outside. I'm going to get into that black suburban. We're going to drive across Chain Bridge. I'm going to get back to my office at Langley. And if I've got a manila folder on my desk, I got three options. I can keep them. That's a black site. I can give them to a friend. That's a rendition. Or I can give them to Don Rumsfeld. That's Guantanamo. That's what I got. And so I think you're seeing... You're seeing some of that reality. Now, it's really interesting that you bring this up because the commander outgoing of SOCOM going to be the incoming commander of CENTCOM said in congressional testimony, we don't have a policy yet. Right. Okay? We do not yet have a policy for the long-term detention of the, of the WMD expert that they have. We're still, that's still under consideration. Okay? That's year 15 of the war, year 7 of the administration. And we don't yet have a policy. So there's an undertone of the book is, is that, you, you know, this is hard stuff. Recognize that it's hard stuff. You can disagree. But, you know, somebody doesn't have to be Beelzebub to be on the other side. And that these are hard, hard questions that I think the administration is tacitly admitting. 
but also tacitly, I, I mean, you oh. know, also ad has adopted a set of, of, of policies with respect to these, these detentions that are, that, that you look at and they're not very far from what you would, what, what no. you would describe as reasonable minus the, the specific right. enhanced techniques that you would have asked them to keep. Then the short version, and you and I have shared this before, but I'll, I'll share it here, all right? There is a more significant difference between the first and second Bush administrations than there is between the Bush administration and the Obama administration. Most of these things, electronic surveillance, renditions, detentions, interrogations, targeted killings, were recalibrated in 43-2, not in 44. All right? You had 43-1, I got it. The recalibration of 43-2, and then broadly, the acceptance of the recalibration by 44. That's, and by the way, that's what drives the Europeans crazy. There's a great line in Spiegel that comes out after Snowden. Um, and it's about Snowden and, and surveillance, but it applies to everything we just talked about. And quoted in the book, something along the lines of, uh, we thought it was just George Bush. We thought there were two Americas. Now we know there's just one America, which I thought was cool. All right, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't quite mean it that but way. That, they didn't. They did not. <laughs> so speaking of Europeans, before we get to the <laughs> before we get to the Obama administration, um, you actually have uh, a lot of very very warm words uh, for certain European allies in this book, and some of the most moving passages of the book are. Uh, about the British, the Australians. In fact, the book opens yeah, in Australia. With, in Australia. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on the disparity between the public rhetoric of the debate in a lot of our allied countries and the private intelligence relationships that in fact undergird a huge yeah. amount of what we're able to do with those same countries. Yeah, and, and, and to be fair, that stability of the intelligence relationship that Ben is just suggesting between ourselves and Europeans whose governments kind of wax moralistic against us and, and wring their hands and so on, it, it applies to us too with other relationships. I mean, we, we have troubled political relationships with the country, with other nations, and that intelligence relationship just below the surface of the water is amazingly stable. And the argument I, I create in the book is that the intel guys know they're going to still be around, or their institutions are certainly going to be around when these guys are gone. And they're going to need to go back to this well forever. And so you maintain that stability. But in the case of the, of the ones you mentioned, they, they were like-minded folks, like-valued folks. They, they have, they're loyal to their countries and their government's policies. They have to follow their government's laws. All right, they, they really do. But, but, but there's an understanding about what it is we're about. I, I won't mention his name, but there was a European intelligence chief talking to some of his political leaders, and he simply said, with regard to American targeted killing, of course, we cannot support that, and I understand the clear guidance that you have, been given, you have given me. But you must understand that, fill in the blank, is much safer today because of what the Americans are doing. And he said that to his political leaders. But you also describe, and just to give a sense of the depth of the relationship, you also describe the degree to which you built in the British government into NSA's continuity in government. Oh, plan. yeah. So, um, God, maybe Christmas 03? It's, it's fuzzy. Anyway, I'm NSA, we still feel under a great degree of threat. There, there's a lot of chatter, okay? We had not yet finalized, and we did very, very soon afterwards, finalize our continuity of operations plan at NSA. We actually built a, a site away from Fort Meade that would give us 80% of the capability and 20% of the capacity of the Fort Meade complex. We actually just built it after 9-11 to, to, to ensure survival. It wasn't quite ready yet. So we're, we're getting this massive amount of chatter. It's Christmas season, and I, and I called David Pepper, who is the head of GCHQ. You know, you've seen the movie, right? Bletchley Park, Imitation Game. You know how tight we are with a few SIGIN services. 
So I called David up, Merry, Happy Christmas, David, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, one more thing, Dave, David. Um, we actually feel a bit under threat here, and so I, I've told my, my liaison to, to your office that should there be catastrophic loss at Fort Meade, we are turning the functioning of the American SIGINT system over to GCHQ. Long pause. <laughs> I got something like, do you guys know something we don't know? <laughs> and I, I said, well, there's, there's a lot of noise. Oh, no, we, we got the noise. I, David, just, just a precaution. But if we go down, you run the show. Yeah. yeah. So Barack Obama comes into office. There's a account at the end, toward the end of the book, of this transition period. It's a complicated story from your point of view. Yeah. On, on the one hand, uh, you describe there having been less disruption than you suspect there would have been had yep. John McCain been elected. Uh, on the other hand, you, uh, you clearly uh, felt very strongly against the release of the memos uh, oh, on, yeah. the, on the interrogation yeah. stuff. Uh, and your, your uh, there, 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 there's a sense throughout it that that they kind of left you hanging for a, uh, in, in a less than polite way about what your fate was going to be. Yeah, that's you know okay, fine. More, more important is after the new administration release of the memos, release of the IG report, they kind of left the agency hanging for a while too. So what? When, when you look back on that period, is what the fundamental takeaway to you that this is an administration that came in with serious priors and grew up? Or is the fundamental takeaway that this is a group of people who came in with priors and their priors led them to make very substantial mistakes? Again, you know, the macro judgment, and look, I can argue about I can fill the rest of our time here at night arguing about shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have gotten away with that. But again, the, 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 the basic plot line here is continuity, not change. All right? And so, and so I, I feel good about that. And I, I, you know, there's a line in the book about uh, national security looking different from the Oval Office than it does from a hotel room in Iowa. And, and one of the jobs of the permanent government is to impose that reality on, on the new team. I think they rushed into some things. Uh, I, I think they, um, um, I would have kept the black sites. And uh, sorry, I'm jumping around. When the president was going to issue the executive order closing the black sites and confining all American interrogations to the Army Field Manual, I called Greg Craig, who was the new White House lawyer, and with whom we had a, actually a good relationship, and I still do to this day. I said, Greg, um, not that you guys asked, but this is CIA non-concurring on your executive order. All right? And he said, yeah, we kind of figured. All right? And I said, and by the way, you can buy almost everything we want back by just the insertion of a small phrase. You know that part where you say, all US interrogations will be conducted in accordance with the Army Field Manual? We would then say, comma, unless otherwise authorized by the president, comma. It's all we wanted. And Greg said, well, we'll take it under advisement, and of course, that that wasn't, wasn't ever going to happen. And so that same day when the order comes out, I, I, I give the word to the workforce. They've given us the new box. These, they've given us the clarity that we need. We will work inside, work inside the new box. And if it would have ended there, then uh, it, it would have been fine. But I then tell the story. This is me out of government, getting a phone call from John Rizzo, the general counsel, saying, General, they're going to release the memos. And, and then you begin this. Release the memos in April, release the memos in August, additional memos, release, release the IG report. And, you know, we're kind of going, hey, you said we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. Why are, you, why are you doing this? And, and that's where it really got a sense of betrayal, small b, but still betrayal. Um, these are people, I already told you, who did this seriously, did it out of duty, not enthusiasm, did it because they thought, and here's the punchline of the book, did it because they had a social they thought they had a social contract with the American nation, not with a transient administration. The line I use is when you tell a case officer, go do this, he gets to ask three or four questions. Number one, you think it's a good idea, boss? 
Yeah, check. President authorizing it? Yes. Have you told Congress? Check. Does the Attorney General say it's legal? Check. At that point, you think you have an, an eternal contract with the American nation to, to cover your back. And this is the first time in history that a president has decided to make public and frankly allow his attorney general to attempt to create felonies out of his predecessor's covert action program. And so I, I felt compelled to describe it as a, great, as a great betrayal. I also felt compelled to try to explain it in the book. And the explanation is I think Eric Holder believes it. Okay? I think President Obama felt himself politically in a box. He was an awful lot like 43. <laughs> and he needed to take advantage of every opportunity to demonstrate that he wasn't like 43. And here is a way to do B while not really changing course with regard to A. And, you know, do I know that to be true? Of course not. It's, I'm not quite making it up, but I'm trying, I'm trying to analyze what happened. And I think the president was not a true believer like the Attorney General. I think the president was trying to split the political difference. I'm going to, I'm, you know, it, it's kind of steady as you go, but, but I'm going to buy down the political tariff, politics tariff, for steady as you go by going ahead and creating all this churn over here. The only sad part is there were human beings getting churned over here. And we had CIA officers pulled back multiple times to the grand jury for charges that were already presented to career prosecutors and rejected. So I, I just got angry at the human toll to, to the agency. I wasn't the only one. David Ignatius, who you know, knows the agency, is fairly apolitical, David called the release of the memos, his quote was, like a car bomb going off in the driveway at Langley, was his, was his description. So I, yeah, I, I get a little hard-edged in that part of the book. But come back to the, to the fundamental truth, more continuity than change in, in the arc between the two administrations. General Hayden, thank you very much for joining us. You had no, nobody leave during that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.